Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, please subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Today we're going to be talking about how to rank states in terms of freedom, economic to be precise, with uh, Dean Stancil. We're joined by Dean Stancil, Associate Professor of the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom and the lead author of the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of North America. Uh, Dean, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So as a lead author of the, uh, the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of North America, tell us just a little bit about what the Fraser Institute is and what the report itself is about. Sure. So the Fraser Institute is a think tank up in Canada, and about 30 years ago, uh, Milton Friedman and, and Rose Friedman and uh, Douglas North, Gary Becker, all, all three of those are Nobel Prize winning economists and a bunch of policy people from Fraser and, and Cato and other places got together and, and uh, led really by Friedman and said, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had a way to measure the uh, level of freedom in uh, societies across the globe? And so it took them about 10 years and, and multiple conferences to uh, come to agreement on on what then became known as, and is still known as, the Economic Freedom of the World Report that my colleague Bob Lawson is one of the authors of, and they rank the countries. And, and so I'm not involved with that one, but but that's where this all started. And and then uh, I think it was about 10 years later, I, I've only been involved the last six issues, but I think it was about 10 years later that they said, well, you know, we could do this for the states as well. So they, they uh, used the, the same basic methodology, uh, adapting it, for uh, appropriateness uh, to measure freedom in states as opposed to countries. And so we are in camp with Economic Freedom of North America, which, like I said, I got involved with about six years ago. And and we look at the, the what they call them provinces up in Canada. There's uh, 10 provinces in Canada, plus, of course, the 50 states. And I think it was three or four years ago, we found a researcher in Mexico who was able to, to dig up literally door to door sometimes, uh, hand collecting data so that we can have comparable data on the Mexican states. So we've got the 32 Mexican states in there as well. And yeah, it's been a really interesting project for me and it's really driven a lot of my academic research as well in the past few years. Maybe you could work us through a little bit about how the rankings are calculated. How do you determine, you know, obviously uh, economic freedom or whatever is good, but you know, how do you determine which states, where they fall in the rankings? Sure. So what we do with the the state version is we break it into three categories. So we've got uh, the first category is government spending. So we look at three different uh, parts of the essentially of, of state state and local. By the way, it's state and local government combined, of course, uh, state and local budgets. And then we have a, uh, a a second category is taxation, where we look at the three different. Uh, components essentially of, of state and local revenues, plus we add in a fourth variable, which is the top marginal income tax rate, since income taxes are so harmful to both uh, economic freedom and, and economic prosperity, they essentially are a punishment uh, for uh, productive activity. And in the third category is what we call labor market freedom, and here we look at uh, restrictions on labor markets, we look at the minimum wage, we look at the uh, government the bureaucracy as a percent of the total uh, state employment 
and then we look at a measure trying to capture the impact of, of state union laws. And, and rather than just a simple right to work law where it's either you have it or you don't, this uh, measures is what we you look at union density and then we adjust for the uh, government employment variable to, to kind of net that out. Because obviously if you've got more government employees, you're likely to have a higher uh, level of uh, union workers as well. And so it's intended to capture the, the degree to which these union laws uh, vary across states. And, and by the way, so then we take these on each of these, we take the, uh, like for example, on the spending and the tax ones, because of course states are different sizes, we take the total dollar value of whatever the particular category is and we divide it by by uh, state personal income. So that if for ta with taxes, for example, if, if you're in a, a poor state like say Mississippi, a $5,000, a lot of times people measure this on a per capita or per person basis. A $5,000 per capita tax burden is much more uh, binding in a state, in a poor state like Mississippi, than say in a richer state like uh, New York or Connecticut. So so we look at it as a percentage of personal income to capture the, the actual burden upon people who live there. And then for each of those variables, we, we uh, standardize it. We basically grade on a curve. So whoever's best gets a 10, whoever's worst gets a zero, and everyone else is proportionally in between so so if we didn't do that everyone would get an f essentially but but uh so so we do that and then we average them across within each category so category one government spending has three variables you get a zero to ten on each of those uh variables then we just average those to get your spending score same thing we do for taxes and for labor market freedom so we end up with three area scores and we average those to get the overall score Okay, so let's cut to the chase. Uh, uh, we're all Texans here. So how, how did Texas do? Texas continues to uh, be right there at the head of the pack. And, and by the way, for, for uh, listeners who, who want to seek out this report, we can, they can get it at freetheworld.com. And, and it, they should note that there are two indexes here. One, the one that, that matters, uh, I should say the one that's most important uh, for comparing states is the what we call the subnational index, where we look at the state and local governments. But because uh, Fraser is a, a think tank in Canada, they of course care about comparing, say, you know, their their freest uh, province, Alberta, to to states like Texas. So so we add in the federal government stuff to come up with an all governments index. But but what happens is it kind of distorts some of the rankings uh, in the sense that some states you know get a lot more back from the federal government than they pay in, and it. It, uh, it leads to some funky outcomes, so, so I, I de-emphasize that one. It's not, uh, it, the, and we say in the report, for comparing within the same country, you look at the subnational index. So Florida is at the top this year. New Hampshire is second, and then, and then Texas, followed by Tennessee and South Dakota and Virginia, Georgia. And, and, you know, for several years now, if you just look at the four most populous states, it's been Florida and Texas up or near the top. New York in dead last by a pretty big margin for quite some time now. And California was 49th last year. They're up to 47th this year. But still, you've got a real contrast in economic policies in California, New York versus Florida, Texas, as well as if you look at some of the data over the last three years, people are essentially voting with their feet. Population has grown over three times faster in Florida and Texas, whereas uh, in New York in particular, it's barely budged. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you are from Florida, so should I detect some uh, favoritism here? <laughs> you, 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 you see right through me, yes? I doctored the rankings of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me. You know, no. you, normally when we think about Florida, we think about the crazy headlines. So, so, Florida so, man, right? Florida man. <laughs> right, right. 
So I am a I'm, I am the rare uh, fifth generation native of anywhere. Florida in particular is pretty rare. Uh, but but no, look, Florida has has been up there near the top for many years before I got involved. And and look, that you know one of the things that that's certainly similar between Florida and Texas is there, there's no state income tax. And since we essentially count the income tax twice, that that has an enormous benefit for Florida and Texas. And in the list I read off to you, right, New Hampshire is second. They don't have one. Tennessee doesn't have one. South Dakota doesn't have one. So so there are you know there are other factors that matter as well. But but the income tax is a big advantage for for uh, Florida and Texas when when people are considering where to live, knowing that well, if I'm leaving New York, where I've got a huge income tax, or California, where I've got a huge personal income tax in addition to the federal one knowing that I don't have to pay that anymore can, can make a big difference for, for people in choosing where to, to locate. Okay, so being third out of 50 is not bad. Uh, if, <laughs> if we're talking about Texas football, that might actually be a good thing, you know, something to hope for. But, uh, you know, if we're talking about economic freedom, we want to be number one. So how did Florida beat us? Right, so, so and, and the thing is, uh, it's it's been a couple of years now where the, the Cato Institute does a similar report. Texas came out 10th on economic freedom. The, the Tax Foundation does a state business tax climate index. Texas was uh, was was uh, 15th on that one, whereas Florida was fourth. And the biggest driver of this, for me at least, and I know uh, my, my good friend Vance again at Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, harps on this issue a lot, is the notion of the the, uh, the business franchise tax. Yeah, yeah. Tax that, that that virtually no, uh, very few other states have, and while there is no, uh, of course, no income tax here, we do make up for it in in Texas with uh, fairly high property taxes. Uh, the sales tax is fairly high, and of course, you've got to get the money from somewhere. But uh, but that business franchise tax is, is is a big deal, and I think that that getting rid of that would would make a big difference. Because when it comes right down to it, you know, sure they're third and Florida's first. The difference on a zero to 10 scale is about uh, 0.3, 0.3. So, so these things can, can bump around a, a small movement can in number and score can, can lead to a, a couple places in rank. So, so there's, you know, there's nothing to be terribly alarmed about, but certainly there are things tex- Texas can do to improve getting rid of some of their uh, uh, state economic development incentives would be another way to go. Florida has kind of led the charge on that in terms of, uh, they zeroed out their uh, Enterprise Florida fund a couple of years in a row recently, whereas Texas continues to bankroll that thing pretty heavily. Well, let's let's talk about that for a moment because the uh, I think I think over the weekend, uh, the Wall Street Journal has a report that says that the Amazon headquarter two sweepstakes may be coming to a close, and that there's down to three different cities that seem to be on the short list. One of which is Dallas. And over the last few months, there's been all these cities and states that are throwing billions of dollars of incentives to, to Amazon, trying to lure them into their city. Are those programs effective at all? No, no, they're not. And there's been a, it's not just me saying that. There's been a lot of research done on this. And generally what happens is, and the way I like to describe it is that it's, it's not only that it's a zero-sum game. It's actually a negative-sum game. Because think about what happened now. For example, it was a couple of years back. I think it was maybe even before I moved to Texas. But when Toyota moved their headquarters, actually, I guess it was just last year when they officially opened. So but when Toyota moved their headquarters, uh, their North American headquarters in California last year, well, that involved a, an expenditure of $47 million taxpayer dollars on the state and local level with Texas and Plano chipping in, in part to convince Toyota to move here. Well, think about from the, the national economy as a whole perspective. 
So California's losses were essentially equal to Texas's gains. But then you factor in that $47 million that the taxpayers chummed up to, uh, to get them to move. It's a, neg- it's a net loss of $47 million. And that $47 million comes out of the pockets of uh, existing businesses in Texas, sometimes competitors with these, uh, com- these corporations moving into the state. And it makes them less able, basically having their own tax dollars used against them. And and that's not uh, that's not good for small business in particular because they ne- they never have a seat at the table on this sort of thing. They just don't have the resources to uh, to uh, be able to and the political capital to get uh, big incentive packages the way the big companies do. Well, you uh, you already mentioned the Tax Foundation's uh, State Business Tax Climate and Cato's Human Freedom Index. I know on the, um, the Tax Foundation's report, uh, they are, as you mentioned, they are very critical of our um, margins tax. And I think they said that they would, that if we eliminated it, we would jump to the third most competitive um, state uh, corporate income tax. What about Cato's Human Freedom Index? And I know, I, I know we want to talk about your report, but what, how is it different than, uh, than the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of North America report? Uh, what type of criteria is Cato uh, looking at? Sure. So, so there, there is a there is a Human Freedom Index that is a country-based report, but but the one you're referring to is also Cato. It's called the Freedom in the Fifty States, and the way that report differs, we're essentially doing the same thing, but we do it in very different ways. And so they have, um, I want to say, a hundred different variables. They have a ton of. Uh, uh, things that have really a very small effect on economic freedom, but they they make an attempt through the economic, uh, academic research to to kind of quantify what the real dollar value impact of those policies are. So so they they, they have to take more of a kitchen sink approach, whereas we take a, a more uh, basic, uh, here's some big issue, mat- issue uh, ticket items that matter. And so w- one of the things they do differently, though, that is that theirs looks at measures of personal freedom as well as economic freedom. And I think I mentioned Texas came out 10th on economic freedom. Florida was first on their report as well, by the way. Mm. Um, so there's some confirmation of what we've done. But but when you look at personal freedom, guess where Texas is? It's pretty low from what I call. It, it is dead last. Yeah. Dead last in the country. And so so that's a big issue that, that we don't account for at all, not because it's not important, just because it's it's real hard <laughs> to, to uh, get data on, on personal freedom issues. And, and you know, hats off to these guys. Uh, at Cato who have done the hard work to uh, put this together. They do theirs uh, in part because of how hard it is. They only do theirs every other year. Really? Uh, we do ours every year. And we've got about 35 years of data now, I think. So so for an academic researcher, having that long panel of data, that you know, 35 years of data is real important. And so there's been a ton of uh, academic research using our index. Right. And you were you were previously at Cato. So for if, if Texas wanted to improve on the Cato scale, uh, what do we need to do? Legalize pot? <laughs> so on the personal freedom side, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff, and I I can't really cite you chapter and verse, but but certainly that that is one of them. That's one of the factors. You know, these are libertarians like me, and 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 they think that is an important uh, restriction on on personal freedom. And, but there's a whole ton of stuff, education, freedom, and all, all sorts of things that 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 Texas could do better, and and hopefully hopefully they will. And by the way, when I was I was at Cato many years ago, but when I when I first started there as an intern. I got involved with with a guy named Stephen Moore, and we he came up with this idea of doing a report card, fiscal policy report card for the governors, and they still do it. They do it every other year. I, I, but I was involved with that very first one, and so we, it was kind of a similar exercise to what I'm doing with the EFNA, 
but but here we were personalizing it and uh, and giving an actual A to F you know kind of report card grade to these guys. And it it was uh, we would get a lot of response, especially from those who we gave Fs. <laughs> and they, uh, <laughs> they would write uh, angry uh, back then. I guess it was angry letters uh, rather than or maybe faxes. faxes. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no tweets back then. So, you know, a- economic freedom, that sounds like a good thing. But to what extent are these rankings actually meaningful? Uh, you know, what, what what sort of real world impact does having a low economic freedom score mean in terms of, you know, prosperity or happiness or things like that? Sure. Yeah. So so one of the things we do every year is we kind of uh, in each annual report, we, we break down the the states by uh, by economic freedom level by what we call quartile. In other words, we break them into four groups, uh, forks. And so we, we, we have this little chart that shows the uh, per capita income level in those four groups, most free, least free, and then the two in between. And, and so for this year's report, the, the average per capita income was 7.3% above the national average for the most free states, whereas it was about 10.5% below in the least free states. So you're talking about, you know, almost an 18% differential in per capita income. And, and I don't know about you, but I think most people would, would love to just get an 18% raise if, if they could do it just by moving. Um, and also per capita income was found to grow faster in states where economic freedom is growing faster. So the, the uh, change in economic freedom matters as well as the level and over the years, there have been over 250 uh, articles in academic journals and policy papers by independent researchers using the ethna to examine a whole bunch of different things, including uh, things like basic economic growth issues, but also things like uh, even uh, like a, the um, we did one on eminent domain. We had one where we looked at unemployment and all sorts of measures of various economic outcomes. And the, by far the vast majority, with only a handful of exceptions, indicate that there are some uh, positive correlations between uh, economic freedom and positive uh, these positive uh, economic outcomes. And and the same thing is, is true for the, I mentioned the economic freedom of the world earlier. That one's been around longer and it's countries, so you got more people in other countries using it. There's probably been five, six, seven hundred articles using that one. And, and there they go into things like the cleanliness of the environment, infant mortality, uh, corruption, all sorts of things. That, that you wouldn't maybe first be first on your list of of things where you think economic freedom would make a difference, but they have found uh, found it to make a difference in a, in a whole host of areas. So you, you you mentioned that states or countries that score better for economic freedom tend to grow faster, be wealthier, et cetera. Uh, is that something that, that works prospectively or predictively as well? So it's not just that you're looking back and, you know, maybe if a country is – uh, already wealthy, they can afford more economic freedom. That's that's not what it is. Um, well, well, it's certainly the case, especially when you're talking about uh, areas where there are dramatic differences of the developing world, first world, uh, third world countries, I should say, where you could look at things like uh, freedom as a luxury good in economic terms, as a luxury good that that you first need some of the real basics before you can even afford to start worrying about. Well, we would like our you know, our tax rates to be lower and we like fewer restrictions on labor markets. And there's no doubt there, there's something to that. The, the, one of the advantages of looking at states with research in this area is that there are fewer of those big differences across your, your sample than when you're looking at countries across the globe. 
and some of the many of the differences between countries across the globe are very hard to quantify statistically. So for the kind of research that academic economists do, where you're running a lot of statistical tests, if you can't put a number on it, it it's uh, it's uh, very difficult to to really account for it. And and there's less of that problem at the state level because states, while they do vary, you don't have these huge uh, differences. And in fact, it's even better at the local level. And I have a, uh, I did a local version of the FNA a couple of years ago, and then finally I got around to updating it and expanding it, and it'll be forthcoming. It is forthcoming with the Reason Foundation and one of the, as one of their policy studies here before too long. We're in the production process, but but basically it's just a metro area version of the FNA, and and since it's since it's the FNA methodology, you get kind of similar results in the sense that you see New York's and California's at the bottom, and and the Florida and Texas metros towards the top, but. Uh, but but you have even fewer differences then to worry about it kind of statistically. But but isn't isn't the problem with free market capitalism is that it creates income inequality? I mean that's what I hear from people like Alexandria Kusha Cortez with this Gini coefficient. Isn't that the real problem with capitalism? No, and in fact uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is another area where there's been a fair amount of research, especially with the country index, and, and people have found uh, repeatedly that. Having higher economic freedom does not lead to more economic inequality. In fact, sometimes it leads to the reverse. Um, so, so ultimately, look, if you think about, uh, especially in, in the third world country where you have really bad institutions, typically, and, and you often have totalitarian governments, well, sure, you're going to have inequality there because those with, with the guns and who rule the country are going to have all the stuff. And, and so you've got a huge difference between the haves and the have-nots. The, the thing about a country... Uh, a capitalist country like the U.S. is that the have-nots, if you want to call them that, have improved greatly over time. There's been uh, my colleague Michael Cox at the O'Neill Center and his and his uh, co-author Rick Alm have done years ago. They did this report on um, looking at the percentage of oh, I know the, the it's called time to work. So like how long it takes to earn enough money to buy a refrigerator or whatever or a television. And, and how much that's changed, think about how that's changed over time. I mean, you look at, at, your, at your television now, think about, uh, about what, what TVs were like 20, 30 years ago. They were heavier, they were lower quality, and, and they were a uh, lower quality picture, and they, were, they cost a lot more, right? With, especially with consumer electronics goods, we are much better off than we used to be, even those who are, uh, at, in the U.S. terms, at the lower end of the spectrum, the those uh, individuals are, are much wealthier than some of the folks who are middle class in, in really poor countries. One thing that I think is on a lot of people's minds, uh, it's been a big issue in the midterms, uh, is uh, issue of immigration. That's not just an economic issue, of course, uh, but economics does factor into it. Do you have a perspective on how we should think about immigration in terms of economic freedom? Sure, yeah. I mean, I- a lot of people are, are worried about immigrants coming in and, and destroying institutions. And uh, I have some, some ongoing research on this that's, that's under review uh, at a journal. Uh, but but there's, there's looking at the state level, right? And, of course, here in Texas, people are worried about all these Californians coming in and turning. Yeah, that's the, the big problem. We need the wall along the New Mexico border. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly, yeah. Keep the Californians yeah. out. Yeah. Make, make California build it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, there's, so, so at, at the country level, there's been substantial research. The state level stuff, there, there hasn't been so much yet. But one of the things that people have found at the country level is that having more immigrants doesn't necessarily uh, have any significant uh, relationship with 
things that measure your, your quality of your institution, things like these economic freedom indices, where, where there's really no uh, relationship one way or the other, right? Having more immigrants doesn't make you less free. And if you think about it from the perspective of the, of the immigrant, right, if you're fleeing this totalitarian country, why on earth would you then go to this other country and vote for totalitarian policies, right? It, presumably that's the reason you left. And I think well, you people could, are pretty stupid, though. Yeah, I it's think not could, just immigrants. Everybody is kind of stupid. So, well, well, fair enough. Yeah, and if, but you could use that same logic with the California migrants, right? So, so presumably the people leaving California, at least in some ways, are, are not real enthusiastic about some of the the uh, interventionist policies that governments have been had in place for years now, and presumably they're not going to move to. Uh, to, to Austin and, and try to, well, Austin's already pretty far left, I guess, but to move to, to Dallas and try to turn it into to San Francisco, right? And, and they'd have a hard time doing so even if they wanted to. Now, they may be a little bit left of the median voter here, but but uh, I, I think it's an overblown concern. And in the paper that I mentioned that we uh, essentially looked at using the EFNA as our measure of the institutions, in other words, what, what happens to state economic freedom when you have a higher share of immigrants and we didn't find any relationship one way or the other, and so, so I think that that the concern is a bit overblown, and people have looked at it at the country level and, and found evidence that it's overblown, and and, and uh, we're starting to look at it at the state level as well. And I, I think that in general, look, people are moving here because they they like what Texas has to offer, and they like what Florida has to offer, and and that's a good thing, you know, and and, and let the markets work. Let political markets work to to sort out uh, what policies what policy changes may occur. But but ultimately, those of us who favor free market policies, maybe we need to work a little bit harder when you got a bunch of uh, people coming in who who aren't exposed to haven't been exposed to that sort of policy. But but that that's that's fine. It creates more work for us, so so more opportunities. So question for you, I uh, I think we first met um, through the SMU O'Neill Center. And when we first met um, and I was being introduced to Dean Stansel, I just assumed that you were the dean of the O'Neill Center. Do you get that a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dean, dean. Yeah, sure. Now, I don't think I have the temperament to be a good dean. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't think that's ever going to be a, a concern for, for my Do you know Dean Kane? Uh, dean Kane? I'm not sure. Tell me more. Dean Kane from Superman. Oh, of course. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So tell us what the O'Neill Center is about. Sure. So the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom is a it's a research center in the business school at SMU in Dallas. And our founder, it's named after one of our alums, William O'Neill. Uh, he he is also the founder of Investors Business Daily newspaper, a great uh, publication. Investors.com, I think, is where you can find that. And we focus on studying the impact of competitive market forces on freedom and prosperity in the global economy. Our website is O'NeillCenter.org, and that's O'Neill with one L, O-N-E-I-L. Uh, our director, Bob Lawson, as I think I mentioned earlier, is one of the authors of the Country of the World Report. Uh, our founding uh, director, uh, Michael Cox, used to be at the Dallas Fed and has done uh, lots of work, as I mentioned, on, on kind of capturing uh, changes in living standards and how things are really better than than they may seem for some. So so one of the things that Josiah likes to do uh, pretty regularly is ask our guests about their favorite movie that's relevant to their field of study because, you know, Josiah is always bringing in all these scientific guys and it's always some type of sci-fi movie. So without... So what what is your favorite movie about uh, economic freedom rankings? <laughs> and, 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 and it can't involve Ayn Rand. <laughs> 
man, that's tough. I don't think there is one about Ethan Archery Rankings, although I think they did produce a nice little, uh, what's that group? The Free to Choose Network produced a nice uh, set of uh, vignettes about the economic career of the world report and looking at some extended uh, discussions of countries. And also, you know, if you want you know, that sort of content, the uh, the Commanding Heights is, is an excellent series that PBS did uh, many years ago now. But, uh, you know, I've been teaching this um, class in my, uh, my kids' homeschool uh, co-op on where I've called it economics in the movies. And I'm basically just trying to, it's for younger kids, I'm trying to give them some economic principles using movie clips. And so I hadn't done a lot of this previously, but but uh, certainly one of my, my favorite uh, movie clips, this doesn't really relate to um, to economic freedom per se, but but if you think about the some, some basic economic concepts like consumer surplus and producer surplus, if you think about the movie uh, Pretty Woman, I don't know if anyone remembers the scene in Pretty Woman where where um, they're negotiating over her price, right. and, and they, uh, they I, I don't remember the numbers, I think they end up at 2,000, and then she's, uh, she says, I would have taken 1,000, he's like, I would have paid three, you know, so so basically this this idea that you can see consumer purchase surplus, even in in the movies, you can see very basic uh, economic concepts. Uh, another a favorite clip of mine is from the movie Office Space, where, I don't know if anyone remembers this movie well, but it's... Uh, oh, yes, uh, Office Space has a special place in my heart, yeah. Yeah, oh, it was, it's a classic for me, but but uh, where uh, the, the consultants come in and they're looking to cut corners and and they, uh, they're they interviewing the, the lead character, Peter Gibbons, and, and they're asking, he basically had stopped going to work, he just didn't want to go anymore, and and they're uh, they're all excited and they're, they're offering him, you know, what can we do to motivate you they offered like stock options and, and as it turns out you know things like that profit sharing stock options are uh, solutions to what we call the principal agent problem in economics again not really any kind of freedom issue but more of an economic uh, concept issue where you can see it illustrated uh, quite clearly and that's that uh, that clip from that movie all right it, yeah it also has the economic lesson that uh, fractions of a penny you know uh, kind of add up right There's a, there are whole websites now about um, Seinfeld, the economics of Seinfeld, the economics of the office, the economics of the Big Bang Theory, and the economics of Park and Rec, Parks and Rec. So I've been using a lot of those clips from those TV shows. Um, there's good stuff out there, uh, and if people are interested in that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. One one last uh, plug I want to put in that you know the when, when the economic freedom of the world uh, movement got put together when the Friedman and these guys were trying to come up with a way to measure economic freedom, part of the, the group they were all organized with was called the Mount Pelerin Society. Mm. And the Mount Pelerin Society meets uh, annually, and, and it just so happens that in, in May of next year, it will be meeting in Fort Worth, Texas. Nice. The, the O'Neill Center at SMU is, is co-organizing it with the Free Market Institute out at Texas Tech. And so if anyone's interested in, in finding out more details about that, they can go to MPS, that's Mount Pelerin Society, mpstexas.org. Is this one of those groups that Alex Alex Jones would have a lot of opinions about? Uh... I don't know. This group, well, no, I don't think so. This group is, has been around a very long time, and it, it does tend to skew a little bit older, although they're trying to, to bring in younger folks. Uh, no, it's a more serious kind of policy-minded group, but... Not, not a lot of uh, like you know live tweeting going on there, I don't think. But but it's but it's a good uh, it is a good collection of of folks who are really interested in in, in freedom and, and in uh, in classical liberal policies and and so it'll be right in our backyard. So if you're interested, check it out. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. I love it.